0: Episode 289, The Right Amount of Oncology Screening and Care in a Pandemic and Not in a Pandemic. Today, I am speaking with Bishal Gayawali, MD, PhD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking, relentlessly seeking value. You may or may not know. I don't know why you would, honestly, but I speak Swedish. I mention this because there's this famous and really culturally emblematic Swedish word, which is this, lagom. It means, in air quotes, the exact right amount. In Swedish culture, the exact right amount deserves its own word. (laughs) Like, for example, did you have enough watermelon? Why, yes, I had half a slice. It was lagom. Logum has no direct translation in U.S. English because in the United States, we don't need a word for the exact right amount. Why? Because the exact right amount already has a word. The most. <laughs> more. More is always better. I think this shows up in healthcare in this country, and it definitely showed up in my conversation with Dr. Bashal Gayawali today. There's this cultural bias in this country that more is better. The point I'm making is that there's a sort of fundamental belief that aggressive therapy that, you know, the most aggressive therapy is the best therapy and conservative therapy or following the treatment pathway that works for the majority of patients is is kind of like a surrender. It's not about being pro or anti anything. It's about being data driven. It's about finding the, you know, logum amount of care that the data suggests is the best amount of care and not immediately assuming that if something isn't done, that it's been a subpar outing. Today, I'm talking with Bishal Gayawali, MD, PhD. Dr. Gayawali is a practicing oncologist, assistant professor at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada, and he has studied and worked in Nepal, Japan, and the U.S., and now in Canada. He's a thought leader in studying the data impartially and finding ways to help patients and oncologists systematically make the best decisions toward high-value oncology care that is not financially toxic. You can listen to Dr. Gail while he sum this up in his own words or read his paper on the topic. But here's his top line suggestions. Number one, follow NCCN and ASCO guidelines. Payers, negotiate drug prices based on clinical benefit. And this means you too, Medicare. Hospitals, more price transparency up front, but also for the doctors. You know, financial toxicity is the thing. It's been shown that patients who are suffering from financial toxicity die earlier. So this is definitely data that a doctor needs to know as much as, you know, some kind of clinical decision-making factor. Also, advice for hospitals, have a financial advisory desk. And for everybody, let's make sure that we're correcting the misincentives at the physician-patient level, i.e. all that's going on with buy and bill. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Bishal Gayawali, MD, PhD, welcome to Relentless Health Value.
1: Thank you very much. It's my pleasure.
0: You've obviously spent a career thinking about this, but there's a big difference if we're talking about oncology between the conversation that a singular oncologist has with his or her patient and thinking about oncology policy like a policymaker.
1: You know, given my background, my research uh, expertise and focus has been on cancer policy and global oncology, cancer policy overall, including regulatory policy. So I wear exactly these two different hats. Uh, I think as a researcher, as a policymaker and do policy research. And when I'm doing that, I'm thinking about the whole population of cancer patients. But when I'm in the clinic with a cancer patient, then as an oncologist, my sole responsibility is for the patient in front of my eyes in the clinic. So these are two totally different hats. So sometimes we make decisions for a particular patient in a given circumstance, thinking what's the best uh, option for that particular scenario and also heavily influenced by patient's own preferences. But when I'm thinking as a a researcher, I need to think about uh, what is good on average at the population level. Uh, I'm not thinking about one individual patient. As a policymaker, you would want interventions that would improve the survival or quality of life of patients with cancer on average. As a doctor, you would want to do what is in the best interest of one individual patient in front of you. And and that's where a lot of uh, misunderstanding comes from. When a policymaker, as a, let's say, regulator, you know, health technology assessment guy, insurance uh, companies, when you make certain interventions and but when the doctors who are working in the clinic will have to deal with, with the consequences of those decisions, they, sometimes uh, there can be misunderstanding.
0: This is what I'm picking up. It's kind of, um, and this is not the right terminology, but I'm going to use it anyway. It's kind of a <laughs> revert to the mean situation. So if I'm uh-huh. under the average... Then reverting uh-huh. to the mean is kind of a good thing because, you know, I get to get average care and I wasn't getting average care before. So, uh-huh. you know, if I'm in a population that was getting poor care and now I'm average, I just gained. But at the same time, if I am someone who's used to getting above average care and exceptional treatment and being an exception to the role, like you saying that now I'm going to get average care seems like a poor option
1: thinking that the average care is bad care in this discussion, right? But if average care is good care, and if we're talking about individual cancer interventions, like cancer drugs, then if a drug is not improving outcomes on average, when you are using it for 1,000 patients, then it's very difficult to think that you would be that uh, one exceptional patient who would do really good with the drug. Patients who are receiving excellent care above average care, they will necessarily have some anxiety about getting down to the average level of care. But this premise, especially in the U.S., is based on the fact that we're assuming more care is above average care. More care is good care, which is not necessarily true. So if more is not always more and sometimes if less is more, then if you are getting more interventions or above average level of health care access, then that necessarily might not lead to better outcomes. So what we need to focus on is above average level of health outcomes rather than above average level of, uh, you know, access to every new shiny little gadget in healthcare market.
0: What I'm understanding you saying, especially as it relates to oncology, just because you're getting more stuff doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, it could actually have the opposite effect.
1: The problem is when we are talking about access to healthcare, uh, new technologies, new way of diagnosing disease, I guess we forget the bigger picture, like the ultimate endpoint, the ultimate outcome. We don't necessarily need modern devices for the sake of having modern devices. We want modern devices because we believe having access to the modern technology will ultimately lead us to better health outcomes. So we need to put that objective in mind while thinking about all these policies, ultimately Will this lead to better health outcomes? You want to have excellent survival. You want to have excellent quality of life. You want to have as much as you can, a good quality time without any suffering. So that's the ultimate goal. But sometimes we forget the goal and we get so much entangled in the in the path itself that we forget the destination.
0: And I guess also, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty very much in these in these cases, <laughs> you know, so like if I am a patient on the cusp of making a prospective decision, it's hard not to consider yourself exceptional.
1: That's why we fall into all those fallacies and traps, because we always believe that we'll be in that particular 1% extra responder group or that 1% group that benefits quite a lot. But we never assume that we may actually fall into the other bottom half that does exceptionally worse.
0: Yeah, I read Daniel Kahneman's book about just the way brains work. We just have this cognitive predilection to Ah. believe the good things are more likely to happen than the bad things that actually might be more likely.
1: I'll give you a good example. Let's talk about cancer screening. So cancer screening is a double-edged sword. By doing cancer screening, you can save some deaths due to cancer. By detecting cancer early, those cancers that were destined to be aggressive and kill the patient, you can detect them early and, and treat them early, thereby saving some cancer-specific mortality. But on the other hand, you also have risks of being over-diagnosed. You might end up being detected with what looks like cancer, but was never going to kill you in the first place. But you get scared and you undergo invasive uh, diagnostic procedures or even therapeutic procedures. You undergo surgery, radiation to to treat a cancer that was never going to kill you in the first place so you suffer all the adverse outcomes of overdiagnosis and get no benefit at all then there are some patients who like to do cancer screening and there are some some people who do not want to do cancer screening but the people who do want to undergo this cancer screening they will always believe that they will fall on those beneficial tail of the probability they won't believe the the cancer that was detected was an overdiagnosed cancer and they had to undergo all these procedures in futile they will they are not going to believe that
0: at least anecdotally you know somebody's making the medical system into a hero for finding something that and treating it that was never going to be anything anyway it's this weird i don't know stockholm syndrome kind of <laughs> I, I don't know but i guess it's hard to to know us talking about cancer screening right now, actually, in the middle of a pandemic is pretty apropos. You actually wrote a paper about this yeah. recently, about the trend of doctors telling patients to forego the screening for a while. It was published in JAMA as an opinion. What were you deliberating in that paper?
1: Yeah, exactly. Since during the peak of the COVID wave, we were asking even patients with cancer, like patients detected with cancer and patients needing treatment, we are asking these people to stay at home as much as possible and come to the hospital only when absolutely necessary. We were stopping, we didn't start some apparently low-value cancer medications. We always knew they were low value but we had been using them for some reason anyway. But due to the COVID pandemic, we came back to our rational thought and we said, oh, it's not worth it anymore. This is such a low-value intervention that the patient may die of COVID by coming to hospital rather than die of cancer and this drug is not going to do good anyway. So These patients should not be coming to hospital to just just get this wrong.
0: Give me some examples of that low value care. We were talking about screening before. Obviously, there's some interventions.
1: To get back to your question about screening, the, the distinction I'm trying to make is patients with cancer who need treatment versus apparently healthy people who we want to detect cancer early. The general consensus at the time was that patients should not be coming to, people should not be coming to hospital for doing cancer screening at the time of the pandemic. And, you know, this whole exercise made me think or made us think that uh, if these are the low value practices that we're stopping during the pandemic, maybe we should have never done this to begin with, especially with regards to the low value drugs, as well as the cancer screening. Should we go back and look at the evidence and and rethink whether cancer screening is actually a high priority when there is no pandemic? So does this mean end all screening? No, I'm I'm not saying that. My point is not to say that all cancer screening is bad and we should stop them. My point is that we need to look at the evidence. We need to relook at the evidence that we have and rethink what screening practice actually helping people versus what screening practice is actually trying to convert more and more people into patients. Because I think the evidence bar to use screening must must be much much higher than the evidence bar for any treatment. Because you know screening is basically converting people into patients. These are people with no symptoms, so there is no way you can improve the quality of life because they already have no symptoms. The only reason why I would want to convert a person, a normal person, into a patient, a cancer patient, would be if I'm pretty sure that doing so would end up increasing his longevity or increasing his quality of life in the long run. But with the problem of overdiagnosis and the fact that None of the cancer screening trials, to my knowledge, have proven an improvement in all-cause mortality. So some of the trials in some cancers have shown improvement in cancer-specific mortality, but none of the trials that I know of have shown improvement in all-cause mortality. And I think that's a pretty big deal.
0: So basically what you just said is is screening hasn't increased the survival time of patients. Do you mean all screening or you know, is that too broad a brush? Are we saying that basically screening non-symptomatic people with no risk factors hasn't amounted to much?
1: You know, there is a little, little uh, distinction to be made between survival and mortality for cancer screening purpose because what happens is if you detect a small tumor early, then you increase survival time by default due to lead time bias. So what that means is let's say a cancer was going to be detected in 2020 naturally because of symptoms, but we detected the cancer in 2015 by doing screening, and uh, the patient died in 2025. Then we would think that the survival time for the patient is from 2015 to 2025, so 10 years, when in fact, even if we had not done any screening, the patient would have detected cancer in 2020 and would have died in 2025. So in this case, what screening did was it did not improve survival. It just increased the duration of the time the patient considered himself or herself as a cancer patient. Survival is a little confusing. So we'd like to use the term mortality while talking about screening trials. So what I was telling you was, to my knowledge, irrespective of any cancer type, in any cancer type, no trial has shown that it improves all-cause or overall mortality. Some of the trials have shown that it improves cancer-specific mortality, but no trial has shown it improves all-cause mortality. This is for the general population. This is the, I'm not talking about high-risk like patients with uh, BRCA mutation who are at a high risk of breast cancer, and so those are special population which we can't talk together with the normal population, but uh, for the normal population, no trial has ever shown an improvement in all-cause mortality.
0: If there's a slice of the population has no symptoms mm-hmm. and no risk factors mm-hmm. as identified by, you know, there's a number of different bodies that do recommend like screening recommendations, so mm-hmm. you don't fall on any of those charts, you got yeah. no symptoms. There's mm. basically no advantage of subjecting yourself to screening, except potentially there's no positive upside.
1: Now we go back to that uh, thinking between individual level and, and population level. For some people, they might consider, you know, cancer specific mortality as potential benefit because the trial will show that uh, if you do a screening, then your risk of dying from breast cancer will decrease by this much. The risk of dying from lung cancer will decrease by this amount and so on some people might consider that as potential benefit and they still would want to undergo screening which is which is okay but what i'm telling is all cause mortality which considers death due to any cause does not improve but i think the problem is that most of the patients or most of the people are not told this fact that the all cause mortality does not improve because in my opinion personally now this is my personal judgement in my personal opinion, if a person dies, you know, it does not matter what the person died of, right? So, if, uh, like we can't bask in the glory that someone did not die of prostate cancer, but died of a stroke because we did not improve someone's life. So, the beauty of all-cause mortality is that it takes all the downstream consequences into account. I would prefer to see improvement in all-cause mortality and improvement in cancer-specific mortality alone does not convince me personally.
0: Like if the screening turns up some kind of early stage cancer and the patient gets winds up getting treated with some med. I mean, some of these medications are very toxic. And let's just say that that causes some kind of liver issue. And then the person winds up dying of a liver issue instead of a prostate issue in the same duration of time. Like I can see what you're saying. Like, does it really matter yeah, <laughs> you exactly. know what was on the death certificate?
1: A lot of the things that we do routinely in medical practice needs to be re-evaluated. A lot of the things that we do are low value. They might even be harmful. It might be low value or no value, negative value, right? Low value is you get very small return for the intervention. No value is you get no return. And negative value is you actually are harming people by doing the intervention. My fear is that a lot of the things that we are doing are actually they they come under under these three buckets of low value, no value or negative value. We need to carefully consider when we do not have pandemic after the pandemic has settled down, we need to look at all the interventions that we have been doing in medicine and especially in oncology that we thought were not important enough for us to continue during the pandemic. And does that mean are they such low value that we should not ever be doing them? Uh, even when the pandemic has settled,
0: yeah. So, what do you have your eye on? As we were talking about before, you you wrote a paper about this, and you know, like what about low value cancer treatments to begin with, and and you know, could we use this pandemic and kind of like almost retroactively look at. Go back and look at what we were telling people, what the oncology community was telling people not to do. And, you know, maybe that's the first test of is it uh, actually low value? You know, like those things obviously bubble to the top as don't bother. Yeah. Maybe we should take a look at what our gut instinct told us. What things are on that list? And I know you've done a lot of work and talked a lot about. The difference between FDA approval of oncology agents and things that actually make a difference.
1: I have done a lot of work about uh, FDA cancer drug approvals and uh, we have seen consistently that majority of uh, the cancer drugs that have been approved in recent years are being approved on the basis of surrogate endpoints, which do not necessarily correlate with the overall survival or quality of life. So the question is, what do these drugs do then? These drugs shrink tumor to some extent. So is shrinking tumour a good thing? Our instinct again says it of course should be, right? Shrinking tumour should be better than a not shrinking tumour. A shrinking tumour should be better than a growing tumour. But the way we define what constitutes shrinkage and what constitutes tumour growth is quite arbitrary. We have certain thresholds like 30% decrease in tumour size is called tumour shrinkage, 20% increase in tumour size is called tumour growth and so on, which are quite arbitrary. A, and B, there have been um, dozens and dozens of studies which have looked at whether shrinking tumor leads to longer life for uh, for patients with cancer. And the answer always has been, there is very low likelihood, it probably does not. So, you know, if you shrink tumor, but it does not lead to longer life, Does it lead to better life then? Again, I have done that study and published in 2018 and there has been one more study by a different group. Both of us saw that shrinking tumour or delaying tumour growth does not necessarily lead to improved quality of life either. So if it does not lead to improved quality of life, if it does not uh, make people feel better or live longer, then what exactly are we gaining from these drugs? Again, the equation would have been different if these drugs were you know, free of side effects, but they are not. They have lots of side effects and some of those side effects can be serious and some can even be fatal. Patients can die of the, of, of these treatments. The other thing is about financial toxicity, which I believe you, you discussed with my colleague Aaron Mitchell in, the, in some other episode of the podcast. He's quite an expert on this. Patients, they go bankrupt by paying for these drugs. So the broader question is, um, what are we gaining overall by using these drugs?
0: Would anyone disagree with you? You know, like, is there another point of view?
1: Yeah, there is. My point of view, I guess, is a minority point of view in the oncology community because, you know, cancer is such a dreadful disease that you would want to have access to any drug that has even a hint of probable benefit, right? Because the alternative people try to paint is that we are just letting people die without giving them any any, any therapy, which is which is not true. But that's the type of uh, picture that the opposing view tries to paint. And, uh, you know, th- I believe that there should be no debate about this because the answer is pretty straightforward. You could do trials and you could measure for overall survival and you see whether the drug improves or not overall survival. And if it does, give the drugs to the patient. If it does not, don't give the drug to the patient. But A majority of the population in the oncology community believes that even if a drug does not improve overall survival, we should still be using the drug based on tumor shrinkage. And a majority of the oncology community also believes that it takes quite a long time to measure overall survival. So we should not even use overall survival as an endpoint in the trials. We should just measure whether the tumor shrinks or not or whether the tumor growth is delayed or not. And we should just uh, approve drugs based on that. And in fact, you'll be surprised to know that. I published this paper in 2019, uh, last year, looking at what's uh, what's the trend of uh, oncology drug approvals by the FDA over the last decade. And I'm saying that uh, more and more drugs are being approved on the basis of surrogate endpoints now, rather than overall survival. And the proportion is increasing every year. And uh, surprisingly, previously these drugs that were approved on the basis of surrogates and not overall survival would get accelerated approval. This is a unique pathway of FDA, which I really like in which they gave early access to drug on the basis of tumor shrinkage or, or delayed progression, but then they ask the company to do a proper trial after the drug is approved to confirm that it does improve survival. But nowadays, what we're seeing is a lot of these drugs that are approved on the basis of surrogate endpoints are not even given accelerated approval, but full approval upfront so that they don't even have to confirm clinical benefit in a future trial.
0: There's a lot of do I want to call them policymakers? People who create plan designs, benefit designs. You know, there's a lot of employers who are determining what to cover, or what not to cover, or people who are more involved in the that kind of decision making as opposed to the clinical decision making. Given what you just said, what's your advice to them? You know, so if you're gonna put your policy hat on for a sec, as opposed mm-hmm. to your oncologist hat.
1: Yeah, I think that there are a number of interventions that we can do at various levels. So if we talk on an international scale, then we have these big organizations like ASCO and ESMO. These are you have NCCN in the US. These are the big oncology societies that have the power to change the practice of oncologists globally. They can take a firm stance and, and, and they could say that these are low value drugs. We do not recommend them in our guidelines. Uh, we are only going to recommend drugs that have confirmed uh, clinical benefit that where the benefits outweigh the risks so that if someone uses any drug that is included in our guideline they can be pretty confident that on average it gives more benefit than harms and it's cost effective if we're talking about costs these big organizations could do that and that could bring a huge huge change
0: but let me just reiterate. So basically what you said is there's, there's two organizations. One is ASCO and one is NCCN. And both yeah. of them have kind of like guideline driven care, i.e. like first line do this, then, yeah. the, you know, then if the patient does well or doesn't do well, you know, do that. There's, so they're kind of like these algorithms.
1: Yeah. The problem with these guidelines, and this again comes from the work of uh, Aaron Mitchell and Vinay Prasad, is that a lot of these people who are on these guidelines, they have huge conflicts of interest to the industry. So that is something that could be rectified like immediately. ASCO, SMO, NCCN could take a stance and say that at least for our guidelines, we will accept only those exports that, that have not been receiving money from the, from the exact same industry whose drugs are being discussed in this particular guideline. That's something that everybody outside of the oncology world, every public would agree to.
0: It sounds incredibly reasonable that you would get some degree of bias if you're getting paid by the company that's asking you to evaluate your product. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, that is what we can do at the guidelines level and at a a federal level, at the country level. You know, it's very surprising to me that the U.S. does not have that law to ask the FDA or have a different agency to take cost effectiveness into consideration. Other important fact is also that the FDA does not take the magnitude of clinical benefit into account. It just looks at the p-value, so to speak, whether or not uh, the benefit is statistically significant. There has been an example, a particularly egregious example of a drug called Elotinib for pancreatic cancer that improved survival by wait for it, less than two weeks. But it was statistically significant. The p-value was less than 0.05. I don't know if that drug is approved anywhere else. Like that drug is not approved in Canada, UK, or Australia, to my knowledge. But the FDA did approve it because the p-value was less than 0.05. But the question we need to be asking is, uh, this is not an easy drug to take. It has side effects. It is expensive. Uh, It was quite expensive at the time. And what we're getting is, on average, among trial patients, and the trial patients are always fitter and much more healthier than patients we see in the clinic. And it improved survival by less than two weeks. It was 10 days improvement in median survival time. And still it got approved in the approved by the FDA. so is that sustainable?
0: You were talking earlier about, you know, like how do we pay less for low value care? You know, because you know, if you pay less, <laughs> then yeah. if value is a function of quality or outcomes over cost, then the the value increases. Do you see a path forward using, you know, there's been a lot of talk about value based care, there was just a a rule or resolution that came through recently, which enabled, I think it was an executive order, actually, that enabled value based contracting not to get it calculated with best price, which was a barrier that many had cited. How do you see, you know, like the trend towards value-based care meeting some of the stuff that you've just been talking about? Like, is there a better path forward to pay for value as opposed to paying for individual drugs?
1: I'm not uh, well aware of that particular bill that was passed, but I do think that currently the prices of cancer drugs, they are not at all aligned with uh, the value they they deliver. And, uh, you know, I was talking about surrogate endpoints and overall survival. And it's quite surprising that sometimes, uh, not sometimes, oftentimes I see that these new drugs that improve, that, that, that just shrink the tumor, but does not improve survival, they cost much more than the drugs that actually improve survival. And that makes no sense to me. And I was talking about accelerated approval and traditional approval. Accelerated approval, like preliminary approval, there is no confirmation of benefit. We are still waiting for confirmation and full approval is we are happy with the data. There is confirmation of benefit and we are happy with these drugs. And sometimes, again, not sometimes, so nowadays, quite often, you see that these drugs that are approved on the basis of accelerated approval pathway, these preliminary approvals, they cost much more than the drugs that have received full approval. So, you know, the whole pricing system needs to be calibrated. And as I said, it should be matched with the value they deliver, especially in, in, in case of cancer. Because in case of oncology, A, all the drugs are marginal, except for maybe imatinib. All the cancer drugs that we have are modest to marginal. A, and B, even though we call cancer drugs as a free market, it's not exactly a free market because patients don't choose between all the available options. Because patients with cancer are going to die, patients use all the drugs at least once during their treatment cycle. So it's not like choosing A versus B, drug A versus drug B, because drug A is better. You use drug A, and there comes a time when drug A stops working, the cancer starts to grow, and then you use drug B as well at that time. And then you use drug C as well. So even if you have 10 drugs for the same cancer, if the patient is able to, you end up giving all the 10 drugs at least once in the treatment cycle. Uh, It's a little complicated. So I guess um, the pricing should be much better aligned to A, the level of evidence, like drugs that improve overall survival and drugs that just shrink tumor, they should not cost the same to the system. Drugs that just shrink tumor and not improve survival should be costing much less. Than drugs that improve survival and B, among the drugs that improve survival, we should also be looking at the margin of benefit. Drugs that improve survival by a couple of months should cost much less than drugs that improve survival by, you know, for five months or uh, six months.
0: So I cut you off before we were talking about how we might be able to kind of rectify the incidence of patients getting what amounts to, you know, a treatment that's not going to help. It's not going to it's going to increase their life by two weeks. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. emptying out their the family going into debt. Meanwhile, you know, side effects that may make those two weeks kind of miserable anyway. And you had talked about ASCO and NCCN, you know, making sure that there is really guideline-driven care and that it's, it's clearly communicated. Are there any other, obviously the FDA could revamp itself, but let's just set that aside for now. Is there anything else that, a, you know, someone who's creating benefit designs or trying to figure out how to pay for some of these drugs could be doing right now in order to help in the, at least in the short term.
1: In one of my papers about financial toxicity, I have outlined all the steps that uh, we could take at each individual level. So I was talking about guidelines uh, level previously and then in the federal level, I think there should be a change in legislation to allow Medicare to negotiate uh, drug prices. That needs to happen. I just don't understand why. Medicare just have, has to pay for every drug, irrespective of the level of evidence that EFD has approved. And uh, the same will be true for insurance companies as well. They could look at the level of clinical benefit and and they could do cost negotiations or, or reinvestment decisions, taking all this uh, evidence and, and level of clinical benefit into account. And then at the hospital level, we need more price transparency. And the hospital should also have like a financial advisory desk, where patients with these concerns can go and discuss but at the end of the day the ultimate use of any intervention happens in the clinic between the patient and the physician so that's the unit of change so the at the end of the day uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to intervene at that level of physician-patient interaction so we need to think about what motivates that interaction and how we can correct it we need to have a program to correct all the misincentives at that point. For example, getting paid based on the cost of the drugs that uh, they are prescribing. But uh, to be on the less cynical side, most of the physicians and oncologists they are not even aware of financial toxicity. They are not. Most of us are not aware what uh, the drug costs. The drug that we are just writing on the prescription pad that we are just entering into the computer. Uh, We have absolutely no idea how much it is going to cost uh, to the society or to the patient. We have just a general ballpark view, maybe for some drugs, but in general, we have absolutely no idea. So there needs to be more discussion. There needs to be more price uh, transparency, and there needs to be more discussion about the consequences of financial toxicity for the patients. There have been data that proves that uh, now... Patients with financial toxicity, they die earlier than patients without financial toxicity. So, you know, this is not just like an abstract policy debate that we're having. This is a real clinical thing because patients are dying from this. Patients are having poor quality of life from this. Patients are missing their prescriptions from this issue. We need to intervene at uh, the level of physician-patient interaction, and we need to think of proper incentives, how we can change uh, the physician-patient behaviors uh, and those decision-making.
0: Yeah. So if I, it sounds like if I'm working at a hospital and I am in charge of the oncology department, what I should be contemplating right now is, you know, how, what are policies, procedures that help physicians have the time and space to do shared decision-making with patients at the same time that the pricing is transparent the the pricing of what's going to happen, uh, the out-of-pocket costs for the patient and...
1: And probably have some incentives to discourage the use of, you know, low-value medications.
0: Is there anything that I neglected to ask you that you want to add?
1: The bottom line for me is that we should never be pro or anti-anything. We should just be pro-data. A lot of medicine, a lot of practitioners in medicine seem to be, you know, even without looking at data, they seem to be, you know, let's say pro-screening or anti-screening. This does not make any sense to me. You should always look at the data and base your decisions on what the data say. We should always have patients benefited at, at the center of all our decisions. And uh, we should probably ask for a higher level of evidence when it's an intervention that involves healthy people. And we should ask for a higher level of evidence when it's an intervention that has lots of side effects and costs a huge amount of money to the society.
0: Bashal Gayawali MD PhD thank you so much for being on relentless health value podcast today
1: thank you very much it has been a pleasure thanks for having me
0: links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com if you visit the website relentlesshealthvalue.com you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.